Welcome to the Script PhD podcast, where we shine a spotlight on science and technology in entertainment and media. I'm ScriptPhD.com founder Jovana Grbic. Join me for smart, thought-provoking discussions with the brilliant scientists and creative visionaries finding unity between the analytical and the artistic. Dr. Kevin Grazier is a planetary scientist with a doctorate in geophysics and space physics. While at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Dr. Grazier was a principal on the Cassini-Huygens mission to Saturn and Titan. He was the science consultant for TV shows such as Battlestar Galactica, Defiance, Eureka, and Falling Skies. He also consulted on the blockbuster hit Gravity. The latest among his many books on the interface of science and entertainment is titled Hollyweird Science, From Quantum Quirks to the Multiverse. Kevin, it just dawned on me as I was preparing for this podcast that you were actually one of the first interviews we'd ever had for the site back in 2009. You were the science advisor to Battlestar Galactica and Eureka. I'd say a lot has changed since then both for your career as well as the trajectory of science and technology as a mainstay of entertainment. Tell us a bit about what you've been up to. Well, right now, I, I left JPL in 2011, uh, so I'm no longer officially a rocket scientist, though I still do publish, I still do research. Um, I do computer simulations of the solar system, dynamics, chaos, evolution, uh, I generally look at the evolution of planetesimals and the presence of of existing planets. Planetesimal is sort of a generic term for comets and asteroids. So, so by, when I say planetesimal, you hear planet bits. Most of my days I spend as a writer. To be honest, I have a couple screenplays I'm shopping. I have a I have a sci-fi pilot that I've been shopping with some degree of success. Actually, I wrote it quite a few years ago. It's a, it's a Mars colonization pilot, and I. Even though I wrote it before the novel, The Martian, let alone the screenplay, since it is a Mars colonization story, we're you know kind of hoping to get a little bit of a bump from in, you know, from The Martian, and uh, and I have a sitcom I've been shopping. I'm just thinking about just shooting the pilot for that. I'm, I'm probably just going to Kickstarter it and, and go with that. I mean, I already have people aboard. As both scientifically themed, of course. Scientifically themed, yes, absolutely. So um, you know, I've got I've got uh, my books out. I've got the the Hollywood Science books out. Um, the first one was out on September fourteenth, and there are two more in the works. There's there's at least three. We're kind of hoping for four Hollywood Science books, but there's guaranteed. We're already contracted for three, so mm-hmm. they're they're chock full of stuff. The next two will be as long as the first one. So I did consult on a lot of fun things. Um, Eureka was great. Eureka ended. You know, Eureka was partly contemporary with Battlestar, and then it actually ran a little longer. I think everybody worked on Eureka the past two seasons. Our, our best work was towards the end, so we, it was just a, a great experience. And then Defiance, they they hired me like a year and a half before we aired our first episode, so I got to help build the world. I helped to to lay out the way things are and the science of of the arc belt, or where is the Votanus system, or what kind of system is the Votanus system, and... and so I got I got to be a part of building that world on Defiance, and you know since well actually no I was I'm still at JPL when I consulted on Gravity. It just took that long for that movie to get made. The biggest budget wise thing I've ever consulted on is still being shot right now. It's Pirates of the Caribbean Five, 
And while it's somewhat counterintuitive why there would be a science advisor on Pirates of the Caribbean, one thing you've been able to find online for quite a long time now is that the new female lead is initially thought to be a witch and later is discovered to be a woman of science. So clearly there is some potential for science advisory skills right there. And your career is such an epitome of the transformation of geek pop culture during the same time period, particularly with sci-fi, the integration of science and technology, and as you just mentioned, even a mainstream blockbuster like Pirates of the Caribbean has content that requires a science advisor. We're kind of in a golden age of science and technology being represented both ubiquitously and meaningfully in entertainment. Well, certainly there's, there's a lot of things going on there, and, and there's a lot of reasons why you're finding much more science and science advisors in these things. One, there's generally more of a commitment to getting science as right as possible. When you say something wrong science-wise, especially today, you know, if, if you say something that's so at odds with the way people perceive the world to work, you can generate an oh, please moment. And this, the person who says, oh, please, when you make a mistake, is now no longer immersed in your creative vision. They're a person sitting in the 21st century among four walls, a ceiling, and a floor with their arms crossed saying, no, just, just no, no, I'm not buying that. So you try to minimize the oh, please moments as much as possible. So... People are trying to get their science as right as they can. One of the things, you know, we actually mentioned in Hollywood Science is that science is, as you said, fairly ubiquitous. And the average person today knows what the surface of Mars looks like better than the top scientists of 1965 when Star Trek started. And looking at the shows I've consulted on, Battlestar, they took an awful lot of my advice on Battlestar. So they, they listened to me. I, you know, I was always, even when they didn't take my advice, I was listened to. But in Battlestar, science was rarely was front and center. It was just a part of describing these people's day, day to day. Now, if you were to do that, just look at our day today. We're sitting there with a, with a digital recorder that was total science fiction when Star Trek first started. This is a higher tech than the communicator than a lot of things they showed on that series. And so just describing what we're doing now would be science fiction in 1965. So yeah, the, you know, technology is part of our lives. The, the iPhone... I pointed out in a talk I gave at Purdue, the L2 cache, just that part of the iPhone, had more memory than the, the borderline supercomputer I use as an undergrad. Technology is much more part of our lives, so it's inherently going to be much more part of the stories we tell. What are some things that you've learned about the nexus between science and entertainment, whether in the form of lessons or observations, through your interaction with both of these worlds? One of the things that I'm, I'm trying to bring out in the, some of the writing I've been doing is, is things you know, we discovered in, in, in both advising and in, in the research we've done for the, the Hollywood science books. We want Phil Lee to point out that scientists are a lot more right-brained than typically are, they're given credit for in, in TV and, and film. But scientists, um, science is much more of a creative component to that than I think most people realize. There's a lot more asking the question, what if, and, and entertaining just while out their thoughts. Most of them go nowhere. Some go, hmm, that might be worth plugging into the computer or putting into a spreadsheet or doing the math and seeing if that's worthy of a research project. A lot of what ifs are border around science fiction. I think, you know, we don't give scientists enough credit for being truly um, creative people. But on the, on the counter to that, in the entertainment industry, what I've found is that 
people in entertainment generally respect scientists. They respect, they like science, they respect scientists. Sometimes there's not always a clear understanding of what is and what isn't science, and you know, that's, that's always good for some, for some friction between science advisors and you know, screenwriters. I have no problems with people I've worked with. I know people who have. But, again, there's generally a respect for science, an appreciation of science. You know, some are big science, science groupies. I would even go so far as to say everybody in Eureka on our, past two, our, our final two seasons was just a science groupie. And, and, so that's that, and that shows in our last two seasons. Conversely... I don't think there is a similar respect for the people in screenwriting or people who work in the entertainment industry from the science standpoint. It's just Hollywood. There's no just about it. I mean, we make a point in Hollywood Science to point out just how similar a person's career is if they become a screenwriter or if they become a scientist. You've gone through an incredible filtration process. Very few people who start actually make it. Long hours, highly competitive. They're similar in so many respects, but I, I think that there's a you know, tendency to be dismissive about, uh, for Hollywood when it's a really competitive, really tough field, and it, it takes a lot of creativity, and it's hard to write a screenplay. Now, one of the things we're trying to do to, with the Hollywood science books is, is to show scientists that the screenwriters are just as professional as you are. They're just differently professional. What was the evolution process of Hollywood science? Hollywood Science was a book that I I had in my mind from the time I started on Battlestar Galactica, maybe even before. You know, I wanted to discuss the science in TV and film, and luckily there's been a, you know, a, a second... This is a golden age of, of, of Hollywood science fiction. I think there's so much on right now, so many good examples to draw from, and I've literally been taking notes since the early days of Battlestar. I, um, I wrote a book, or co-wrote a, I co-wrote a book, the Science of Battlestar Galactica, which I, I think it came out really well. We're really happy with that one. But at, at some level, I used it as kind of enabling for what I ultimately wanted to write, which was something about, generally about Hollywood and the science of TV and film and science depicted and using it as, as a teaching tool rather than a, an opportunity to say, well, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. Uh, I ran into Stephen Cass. Stephen Cass, he worked at Discover Magazine at the time, hosted the first ever Science of Science Fiction panel at Comic-Con. This was 2007, and it's been going ever since. And generally, it's, it's standing room only. It's, it's, it's a packed panel. Every year we've been doing it. So he created the first one, and it was just me and Jamie Paglia, who was our showrunner on Eureka, and Phil Plate, a.k.a. the Bat Astronomer. And that filled a huge room, and it's, it's gotten bigger every year. So I decided, you know, hey, I'd love to write this book, and, and I approached Stephen, and we had a lot of similar viewpoints. And so... You know, we, we pitched Hollywood Science, got a couple contract offers, uh, decided to go with Springer. You know, this is, this is actually not the kind of book generally they do. They do you know, technical books. They do textbooks. So this is a new series for them. It's a new kind of book. They're learning while we're learning at the same time. So there is, you know, there's certainly, they're coming up to speed on how to do a pop science book, I think, in some respects. They have given us a lot of latitude, a lot of respect. And um, that working relationship is, is I, I can't, couldn't be happier. I feel like Hollywood Science is really two books in one. The first part is a compact but very comprehensive overview of the history of science and entertainment. Concepts used by screenwriters, conceits, tropes, MacGuffins, sci-fi edutainment, 
and a discussion of the wide range of portrayal of scientists on screen. There's a lot to digest, but it's informative to fans, scientists, and folks in the entertainment industry alike. Why was that such an important foundation for the book? Well, the the stuff you mentioned about the tropes and the history, if you think like a screenwriter, screenwriting is about setup, setup, payoff. You pay off what you set up, and whatever you set up, you have to pay off. And so all of that was about getting to a payoff. All that was to say, here is how incredibly complex the whole idea of science accuracy in a screenplay is. It's not just throw a science advisor at it, get it right, we're done. Because there are things we take that we don't even think twice about as far as being accuracy because they've been tropified. So, for example, force fields. Force field is a term, that's one of my bugaboos, is, is force field is something that the term has been co-opted from physics that is, is, doesn't even mean hardly close to what you see it portrayed in, in science fiction, an impenetrable barrier projected by technology to either keep people in or keep bad things out. That's not what a force field is, not really. But we accept those because they've been used so many times in that regard. Oh, I get a force field. I'm not going to question this. Well, maybe you should. So we, we go into these tropes and MacGuffins to say that there are things we accept that, you know, we'll complain about something like, oh, like the dust storm in The Martian. Oh, horribly wrong. Well, okay, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a gimme. It's a conceit. But we'll forget warp drive and we'll, we'll the transporter, yeah, fine. You know, you know some people are, are, are turning a blind eye to some really bad science and, and, and lamenting The Martian or interstellar gravity for things that are not all that bad. So all these are setups for showing how complex the issue is. And, and then there's, there's shows like CSI and, and Breaking Bad who have at times intentionally got their science wrong because you really don't want to be teaching people how to build bombs or make meth. And then there's also there's the, the, the storytellers. You know, they have goals and agenda and timelines and deadlines. And so there's so many things that go into that. And that's going to be a theme that gets, you know, resonates through. And with regards to portrayal of scientists on screen? Just like I said earlier, there's a respect asymmetry between maybe scientists and screenwriters. At the same time, you know, scientists, any character you see on television is going to be shorthand. It's going to be a caricature. So let's talk about, you know, what a scientist really is. Let's talk about how they really are. And, you know, let's, let's understand this character a little better. Now, certainly the portrayals have been getting vastly better. Large content analysis studies have shown that scientists are almost always portrayed in a positive light these days. The scientists as only nerds or, or villains are, is pretty much a trope that's, that's gone by the wayside. They're as complex as any other characters on, on, in TV and film. And, and we wanted to show that evolution, and we wanted to show what scientists are, are really like and, and try to understand you know, how scientists are wired. A very surprising element of your book, echoing a lot of your previous talks and written content, is just how positive it really is. The science we find in entertainment is more good than bad, writers try hard to get it right, and most of the time it's a highly entertaining element of storytelling. Was this emphasis on forgiveness versus absolute accuracy at all costs by design? We absolutely went into the idea. We, we talked amongst ourselves, Steve and I, before we even started and said we're going to be positive this book because no one wants to read 250 to 300 pages of snark. 
okay, some people do, but they're just people looking to look down their nose at somebody or something. I mean, really, when you look at the complaints online, and, and they're just getting more common and more copious and nastier, how many of them are really trying to create a teachable moment, and how many are saying, look how smart I am? We had no need to say, look how smart we are. We just wanted to share our, our love of science, our love of science fiction, and hey, let's let's learn some science, and hey, you get to watch a few movies at the same time, too. And we got to watch a lot of movies, too, which, like I say in a footnote, totally didn't suck. There's a few places we, you know, we lambasted a couple films for, in one particular case, a really awful portrayal of, of scientists. You know, we, we shake our finger equally at scientists, at Hollywood, and at fans. Because sometimes the complaints, sometimes there are science errors in the complaints. Now, the second and meatier part of the book is the physics and astronomy of TV and movies. It's almost like reading a textbook, but liking it so much that you only realize it after the fact, which is to say it's informative and yet captures the spirit of the way TV and movies captivate us. You encourage people to look at even small moments on screen in a meaningful way. Why such a large focus on physics and astronomy in the first book? We pitched a lot of topics that we realized we were totally overwriting. We were going to totally fill this book, and we realized that we have at least two books worth of material here. We picked the chapters that are there for two reasons. Number one, our editor insisted on thematic groupings, so things should like things should be together, and and that didn't take a big sell. We were already I'm already there with that. Secondly, thinking about um, future topics. It's all about grounding you know, our future work and giving people an understanding to, to follow what we're going to talk about later on. So we can always say, hey, back in Hollywood Science, we mentioned this. Go back there and read this. Now we're going to talk about energy in this context. And, of course, the concepts of physics and astronomy are just so important for every other science that it builds on. Yeah, and then in the second book, there's, a, there's, a, there's more emphasis on space. In the, the first book, there's more emphasis on the actual stars and the fabric of the universe and planets. The next one we talk about, well, if we're going to have science fiction, and especially Wellesian science fiction, which does social commentary, we need to have somebody to interact with. So we talk about life, and then life in space, and then contacting that life in space, and then getting to the, to the life in space. So we talk about those kind of topics in the second book. Again, the things that we chose in this first book are all about grounding basic science um, in a way that people will have no problem with the, the follow-on books. And the challenge was taking these topics, which can get a little dry if you let them, and making them fun and exciting for 308 pages. One person who, who read the book says, Wow, you two sure let your nerd flags fly. If you stop to really think about it, the vast majority of films and TV shows in that science and sci-fi realm are grounded, to use your terminology, in physics and astronomy. What do you think it is about both topics that so captivates the imaginations of writers and directors? Well, you know, physics and astronomy, that's the edge of what humanity knows. So the interesting stories, the interesting science fiction occurs at Boundaries. And those are where our boundaries are. You know, there's the boundaries of, of what have we explored in space. Okay, let's go beyond that. What do we find there? Well, we don't know. That big question mark, there's, there are stories there. We're now finding bizarre planets around other stars. There are stories there. So it's about taking 
things that are just inside or just outside of our known boundaries and then finding a way to make that into stories people can relate to. Computation is driving a lot of that as computers accelerate all areas of science are, are, are accelerating with them. And, and well, there's also, you know, it's, it's about people. It's always about the characters. And that's one of the things I think that people complain about the science generally overlook is that the, you know, the science serves a story and when we're, I'm consulting on a, on a TV series, I like to get the science as right as possible, but I also fully realize we're not doing documentaries. And we say that again and again and again. It's like you get the science as right as possible and still tell the story you're trying to tell because it's about the story, it's about the characters, it's not about the hardware. When you, when you tell stories about the hardware, people get bored really fast. You know, telling stories that have great special effects, if there's no character, no story, people get bored really fast. And you have found that physics and astronomy and all the things that it centers around make those stories more possible than other areas of science. They also make those stories more possible, but there are also things that if if they're, they've gotten you get wrong and you don't have to get them wrong, you will pull the person who's watching out of the story and they're no longer paying attention to your story or your characters or the things you want them to pay attention to. They're going, no, 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 that's not right, and, and now you lost me. Now, what, what were you saying? So getting the science right is about keeping people immersed in the creative vision of the story. To date, you've worked in a number of diverse areas of the entertainment industry. What's been a favorite moment or a memorable one? The climactic moment of Battlestar Galactica has to be one. In the climactic instant of Battlestar, it's obviously, it is a blend of music and science slash math that clash in, in, at the very moment when Kara realizes, oh my God, this bit of music that, has, that I've known for my life ha, is actually coordinates and my, mo my life has brought me to this moment. And, and essentially what happened is, you know, Ron Moore wrote the episode, knew that he needed something, a mix of, you know, Watchtower's coordinates. How do we do this? So essentially they, they threw it to myself and Bear McCreary and, and, and uh, Bradley Thompson, writer, was kind of overseeing the process. And they, they said, Bear, Kevin, you two figure it out. And, you know, we talked a few times on the phone and stuff. And we were saying, wow, we just got handed the climax of Battlestar Galactica. We can't track this up. And there was some luck involved because Bear had written a little side piece of music that went along with his version of Watchtower that was 12 notes. And then when I said about what we want for coordinates, things that we've already established in the show, I said, we need 12 numbers. And he said, you're kidding. Because he'd written 12 notes. And it was 12. So, so maybe the Lords of Cobol were influencing that whole process. But yeah, getting handed the, the climactic instant of Battlestar was just huge. I mean, it's just like at one point in time, uh, I had Bear on the phone. Uh, he was, you know, I had a keyboard there. He was playing his little, the tunes. And I, I closed my eyes and just thought, I want to take a mental snapshot, like a screen capture of this moment, because it's never going to get any better than this. And what's been your favorite moment to date working in science? I just had a paper accepted to the, the journal Astrobiology. It should be literally online any day now. And there were some cool results that came out of that paper that I just remember staring at the, the, the raw output and getting chills. And then when you plot it, it just, just gets better. And so that was the oh wow moment for, for science for me. There is another one that I'll be following up with. There's been some pretty cool oh wow moments on that one as well. 
when I realized that I will put forth an idea where I think the the asteroid or the the impactor that killed the dinosaurs came from. It's always a cool thing when you look at a rock or down the barrel of a microscope, or in my case, um, look at some simulation output and realize for a moment that you are the only person who has a certain insight into the way the universe works. Give us a brief preview of the rest of the Hollyweird Science Trilogy and what other sciences you'll be broaching. The cool thing about working with our, our, our current editor is that or she was down from the word go with this being a potential trilogy. And so at any point in time when we realize we have enough here for a much longer chapter, it can go to a later book. Okay, just as long as you give us enough pages, you make it interesting and fun and keep with the thematic groupings, we're good with that. So the next book, Beyond Hollyweird Science, that's going to have themes of life in space and computation and also where those two can kind of clash. So there's certainly overlap. So we talk about some basic biology, basic chemistry, so there's still some more basics in it, but that's all about enabling discussions on life and an alien life. And we also talk about computation and rocket ships and how we get to the alien life and you know and things like that. So space and computation are the two big overarching theme in the second book. In the third book, um, there's a different co-author. So my co-author in the third book is Dr. Jessica Kale. She is a psychopharmacologist at Pepperdine University, a fellow ginger, by the way. And in highly weird science of the third kind, we're talking about like forensic science, which should be a big one and should excite people because that's something we have avoided heretofore. And obviously people are always interested in CSIs and, and that kind of science. We're talking about some medical science. We're talking about a little bit about drugs. That's what she does. She does drugs for her living. So she studies drugs for a living. Uh, we're studying contagions. The outbreaks, like the movie Outbreak or Contagion, and naturally included as part of that are zombies and vampires. So we're looking at those as contagions and outbreaks. So we get to talk about CSIs and zombies um, and a little bit about the environment Still, so there's more of a kind of a, I guess, a theme of more the biological sciences in the third book medical, forensics, and contagions, and um, the environment. But the bottom line is whether you're talking about asteroid belts or zombie apocalypses or a galaxy far, far away, you want people to view science a little differently when they're watching their favorite TV shows. We had multiple goals in mind when we set out to do this series. We envisioned that this could be used in a, as a textbook in a class teaching science to undergrads. In fact, I've taught that class. So lessons learned from that class have certainly gone into this, this book series. Also, we envisioned that writer's room on sci-fi shows could have a copy of our book sitting there. I only learned recently that on Caprica, they had a copy of Science of Battlestar Galactica in the writer's room to, because that was obviously relevant. It would be cool if people could say, hey, let's look at this book and let's try to get it as right as possible without you know, having to bother our science advisor. So it's hopefully we are helping to raise the level of science discourse and dialogue in our own way while at the same time helping people understand that it's not always a perfect goal to get science right. We're trying to get everybody talking and on the same page. Thanks so much for joining the Script PhD podcast. My pleasure.
have been listening to the Script PhD podcast. I'm Jovana Grbic. Our theme music was composed by Dave Mendez. For more conversations with groundbreaking innovators at the interface of science and popular culture, subscribe to our podcast channel on iTunes and SoundCloud. Or find a full archive on our blog, scriptphd.com, by selecting the podcast category. See you guys next time.